Hello, and welcome to episode six of the God Cells podcast. I'm Eric Marola. It's been a while since I've recorded a podcast, mainly because I'm juggling two documentaries at once. I decided to take on something different, non-medical related. I'm working on a documentary, kind of politically charged. All I can say is it has to do with the Catalonian conflict in Spain. It has to do with the banking system. It has to do with a lot of uh, things that are going on in our society today. But this story, like all of my documentaries, is a story that no one's heard about. It's quite complicated and quite important, but I'm not going to talk about that today. I'm also working on a sequel to The God Cells. I originally was planning on, um, because M-Cell has a 35% cure rate for males who are infertile, I was going to follow couples who were going to try to have a child. And what would be more poetic than to follow people who were receiving a therapy that was that is derived from life that was given up and giving life to couples who are trying to conceive. But while they still have a very strong 35% cure rate, and while I was able to meet some people since that have done well under this therapy, no one would allow me to interview them. So I can't make a movie with no one will let me interview them. So I'm switching gears. I've decided to focus on patients, ideally Americans, living with type 2 diabetes. This therapy does really well with type 2 diabetes. When I say this therapy, I'm talking about fetal stem cell therapy, the focus of my fourth documentary, The God Cells. So today is an open call. If you are an American living with type 2 diabetes, there is a chance you can get this therapy for free if you basically meet all the criteria um, based on the prerequisites set by the M-cell doctors and agree to allow me to interview you in your home, uh, maybe interview a local physician if they'll let me, go meet you in Kiev, Ukraine, film you at M-cell, and then follow up with you for the next 9 to 12 months having you do blood work and checking out, seeing how things improve and how your body and, and your overall quality of life has changed since the therapy. That's gonna be the focus of my sequel to The God Cells. So I'm also making frequent trips to Kiev, Ukraine, to M-Cell, because I've been spending so much time in Europe anyway working on this other documentary. My next trip is November, 2019. Uh, the treatment days are November 18, 19, 20. That's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I arrive on Sunday, November 17. I leave on November 21. If you want to, if you're hearing this and you have seen my movie, you want to get this therapy, you know someone else that wants to get this therapy and you want to be there with other Americans or other English-speaking people, it's kind of fun. We all stay in the same hotel. Everybody usually makes a bunch of new friends. They always stay in touch. They have a bunch of new stem cell buddies and um, you can compare notes and it just makes for the experience a lot more fun being around a lot of other people from the same country and staying in the same hotel and going out together in restaurants, etc. So don't hesitate to get a hold of me. My email is eric, E-R-I-C, at ericmarola.com. That's E-R-I-C at E-R-I-C-M-E-R-O-L-A.com. Today's podcast is the audio taken from an interview I did earlier this year. Many people ask me, Eric, how did you get into making these movies? What on earth possessed you to start doing these movies about health issues and controversial treatments that the, you know, as you know, I love disruptive technology, these treatments that are so disruptive that the industry and regulatory agencies try to stop. Well, I go into great detail for a good hour about my life before making films, how I made my first one, the success of the first one, meeting with MSNBC and Dateline and Hollywood and, and how the second, third and fourth movie unfolded. And I was very candid and it's unedited and just I just tell everything. So if you're curious to know how I got into this, you're gonna enjoy today's podcast. Thank you for listening. I'll see you in the next one. For people unfamiliar with you, um, please just tell us your name, your background, and what you've been doing for the last 20 years. Sure. My name is Eric Marola. Um, my background, actually, I've been trained as a fine artist. I had a pretty successful career right out of college as a painter, which took me from North Carolina to New York City. And uh, being a successful artist in Carolina and New York are two different worlds. So the short of it is I kind of quickly got seduced by commercial art and decent money. I ended up working in advertising. A lot of the big Madison Avenue famous ad agencies I worked for. I even worked for even our so-called enemies. I've worked for Philip Morris. I've worked for Merck Pharmaceuticals. I've been on that other side. 
But um, I've always had, I started, as I got older, I kind of got a little bit of an activist bug about me. But I also got out of advertising a little bit and used my talents. I worked on some movies and some TV shows and some documentaries. And I kind of was always a fan of documentary work. I always kind of thought, hey, wouldn't it be fun to do your own documentary for my, of my own? I never directed my own before. So I was in a lucky position because I knew how to edit. I knew how to shoot. I knew the right people to do music. I already had all those pieces. I never really found a subject worth doing. So it's kind of a long story, but I kind of stumbled upon Dr. Brzezinski originally back in 2008, 2009, and just said, oh my God, I'm gonna you know, do this. I'm just, I don't know how, I don't know what's gonna become of it, but YouTube was still kind of getting started back then, and maybe I'll just throw it on YouTube. you know. So as I got deeper, I found myself charging up more credit card debt, calling sick to work. My wife's like, what are you doing? What, what, what is this thing? You know, she knew, I mean, she wasn't, she was aware, but it was kind of a crazy venture to do, like give up this well-paid, these positions as a freelancer that I'd built for myself and roll the dice on this crazy idea of doing a documentary about a guy who created a treatment for cancer that everybody's trying to destroy. Like it sounds, seems nuts. <laughs> so the short of it is, yeah, I mean, I got it done and it ended up being better than I thought it was gonna be. I mentioned in the, my talk here that I got a chance to show it to President Obama's chief of staff through like a mutual college buddy of his. And it was a very awakening moment for me because I got into this going, I'm gonna change the world with this. You know, I'm gonna, people see this, they're not gonna bully, you know. I got a lot of people, the reasons why people start making these films, they just wanna get this message out there. But I don't wanna get too far in the story, but the short is, I had a really early moment of sobriety in the sense of realizing where we're at with this. And what I mean is, when you have the White House Chief of Staff see your movie and go, ooh, about a guy who has a treatment for cancer, who went up against the Food and Drug Administration and beat them in federal court to win his ability to compete with the big boys just to get it through testing, just like any other free market thing we're supposed to be living within. And he sees it and goes, Obama's Chief of Staff sees it and goes, ooh, very important. This is just too big. Maybe in 10 years we could face this, but oh, too big. And when I, that was just such a, really eye-opening moment because in a way I get it like being in that position I mean I'm a pragmatist at heart even though we all have great fantastic ideas on how we can improve or affect society but that was just like whoo and it really helped me realize where are we at where we're at just because people find out about something doesn't mean change is going to occur and if anything if that thing that you're exposing can threaten such a huge establishment like a $4 trillion cancer industry, that can cause major disruption. So anyway, I actually, I'm gonna go on this for a minute. So I did the math on this. I started thinking about it heavily. You know, if you look at 15 million Americans in America, 15 million people in America with cancer, I know this from experience how much it costs because of family members that have had it. The lowball conservative average cost of care of a cancer patient, lowball, conservative, maybe a quarter million bucks over the course of their treatment. A few years, maybe longer, but that's, that's the point. Some people, I've met pancreatic cancer patients that charge had a million dollar bill. Medicare, Medicaid, insurance usually covers this stuff. It's not like it's coming out of their pocket necessarily, but you multiply a quarter million dollars times 15 million people, that's nearly $4 trillion. That's uh, humongous. So I understand what Axelrod's talking about. <laughs> you know, you also think about something like what Brzezinski discovered where it's not a magic bullet, but it's a safer alternative to chemo and radiation and far more effective based on clinical trial data the FDA supervised. It's not like a theory, it's, it's been proven. <laughs> and um, you realize what you're up against. You're like, oh my God, you're talking about taking away matching funds that the NIH gives to colleges and universities like USC or whoever, wherever that study cancer, like you're disrupting. That's something else I wanted to mention. Since I was a little boy, I've always was fascinated by new technologies that disrupt new inventions, like any curious kid. And as I get older, like I thought it was fascinating to see how when Netflix came about, Blockbuster Video just laughed at them. You know, oh, you know, they offered to be sold to Blockbuster for 50 million bucks. They laughed at them. They're gone. Same with the internet, long distance companies. That always fascinated me. But what's interesting with medicine Free market isn't allowed to flourish the same way that Netflix and long distance companies were, you know, that's not the same. So that's what also is fascinating about this. Like, here's this anomaly. Free market's free. Oh, but don't cure cancer. Oh, you gotta be, no, 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 that's not allowed. <laughs> we can't have that on the market. <laughs> oh my God, you know? So anyway, so 
with that kind of armed with that knowledge of that I learned just from this after experience and just like paying attention, I immediately kind of took a really pragmatic approach more than ever towards all my future films. So yeah, so Dzerzhinsky part one, I call it. It was on Netflix for a little while um, before like the sort of anti Brzezinski campaign was unleashed because this thing was really famous, seen by a lot of people. I uh, worked with uh, Dr. Joseph Mercola to kind of promote it. We put it online for free for a while. It just became this viral thing overnight. Um, and mind you, I was one of the few people doing these kind of movies. There really wasn't much in the realm of these kinds of movies. A lot, that's way different today. They're everywhere, and that, that's wonderful. But that's another reason why I was so crazy, because everybody thought I was nuts. You know, Even Brzezinski, even people that were like supportive of the idea, like, no one's going to pay attention to this. You're going to get destroyed. You're never going to get distribution. Why are you doing this? <laughs> you know what I mean? But I did. I managed to get on Netflix. I was on the documentary channel. It was everywhere. It was on PBS. Um, and again, before the sort of like enemies or the sort of people against what I was doing came out to try to disrupt that, which they're really good at, um, I had a good run. And I had a lot of um, cancer patients that saw it come to me. So here I am with this movie that was really successful. I quit my job, you know, thinking, okay, I think I make, might make a career out of this. I was given this access by default of all these terminal cancer patients who saw my movie were emailing me. So I'm not a physician. I can't give them advice. I just said, look, Here's, you know, Brzezinski has a website. You just go there. You can contact him. Here's the number. Um, if you decide to go, I'd like to follow you. You know, just it's up to you, you know. And I, that's kind of what became Brzezinski Part 2. So it was less controversial in the sense that you weren't talking about how the government was taking this guy down and more just personal where I followed patients. And that was um, mainly terminal cancer, brain cancer patients, all of whom were told to go home and die and chose Brzezinski's therapy instead. And I show all this, and half of them lived, half of them died. So I showed all that. But um, anyway, that was part two. And then part, my third movie was a whistleblower story. And this, interestingly enough, was kind of what I wanted my first movie to be. To back up for a moment, it was a book I read called The Cancer Industry by a man named Ralph Moss. Living in New York City, long train rides home at night, working long hours. I always wanted a book in my backpack called The Cancer Industry. It's about a guy named Ralph Moss who worked at Sloan Kettering in Manhattan back in the 70s during the whole Laetrile craze. And, Le and Sloan Kettering was forced to test this um, because so many people were going to Tijuana to get it. So let me just finish my thought though. So, but in this book, it was about the story, which I'll expand upon, which is my third movie. But I had no documentary experience as a director. And this, kind of, this guy was kind of well known and he'd written a book, he was on TV, like, you know, he was on 60 Minutes back in the day. So he, he passed. He said, I'm not, you're not doing a movie about me. So, but in this book, The Cancer Industry, which was about his story, one of the revised versions had a little blurb on Brzezinski because he had paid attention to him. And this, was, this book was revised back in the early 80s, still old, you know. So that's what sent me down the Brzezinski path, by the way. So anyway, so everything comes full circle. Third movie, I did a whistleblower story about Ralph because I had already kind of established myself as a guy that can make movies and get people to look at them and, you know. So... But it was different for me because it wasn't about patience and all this. It was a whistleblower story, you know, kind of like the Edward Snowden, if you would, of this world, you know. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, since we're talking about it, 100,000 people a year were going to Tijuana to get Laetrile, this absurd apricot pit extract. This stuff is basically a throwaway waste product of the apricot canning industry in California. Like, why are people eating apricot pits thinking you can cure cancer? It was, like, honestly kind of chaotic. And even Ralph, being the PR guy at Sloan Kettering, also agreed, this is obscene, absurd. What is this weird mass hysteria over this apricot pit business in Mexico? So Nixon had declared the war on cancer back then. And since so many people, it was on a cover of Newsweek, people going to Tijuana, Laetrile this, Laetrile that. And Nixon, the head of Nixon's cancer panel was also um, on the board of Sloan Kettering. So it was like, all right, we're gonna, we have to test this thing. Let's, let's get to the bottom of this, let people understand this is all nonsense. They give it to their most trusted, longest scientist that had been at the center. He pioneered the idea of using, even using mice in testing a new cancer drug. He would catch mice with buckets in the basement of Sloan Kettering back before it was even called that and test new chemotherapeutic agents. This man, his name is Kamanatsu Sugiyura. He was a Japanese citizen who, by the way, was considered so important for cancer research and he was so old. After Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, they hid this guy because he wasn't, so he wouldn't be detained, because he was that important to the world of cancer research. He also was a co-founder of chemotherapy, as we know it today. You love it or hate it, this guy invented it. And this guy that invented chemo, basically, was the one that was given the laetrile testing duty. Five years of double-blind mouse studies using laetrile, the injectable kind, not the edible, 
eating apricot pits and injecting the apricot or the laetrile that is extracted from it are two entirely different mechanisms of action. Eating apricot pits is not going to do anything, most likely, because once they hit the stomach and the enzymes, it disrupts it. It's not the same. So I just want to get that out there because people see it in my movie and they still don't get it. <laughs> but five years of double-blind male studies, laetrile stopped the spread of cancer 80% of the time. 80%. Never stopped a tumor from growing. It would slow it down, but it, it cured the name of the game, and that is keep the thing from spreading. So it was mice with breast cancer. They were trying to see if it would spread to the lungs. 80% of the time, it stopped it. So they're, they're stuck. They're like, oh my God, we can't make this thing fail. They kept redoing the mice, buying different mice, trying to rig the studies, <laughs> and they just couldn't get it to fail. So Ralph, being in public relations, he just studied classics. He wasn't a scientist. He studied like Greek like he would read Homer with his wife, like in the original Greek language, like he was like PhD in classics, you know, literature basically. And he got this great new job, um, you know, work for some Kettering, war on cancer was just enacted, I'm contributing to society. He also agreed Laetrile was ridiculous, but he, because this guy, Sugiyura, was such a fixture, Ralph, being the PR guy, was asked to write a story on him because he was close to like, you know, he's getting up there in age. We need to do a big biography, um, biographical piece on this guy. Ralph spends a lot of time with him. And eventually he asks, well, what are you doing today? And he goes, oh, I'm working on amygdalin. And he goes, amygdalin? That's Laetrile. Yep. Why are you working on this? It's, it's, it's nonsense. It's like, hmm. And this old Japanese man pulls down all these binders from all his years of study. It's just, <laughs> so Ralph is like, oh, my God. So anyway, I don't want to go on forever and tell you the whole darn movie. But the point is, the short of it is, Ralph, being PR guy, knew the truth. And then when the time came where Sloan Kettering was forced to lie, guess who had they asked to write the press releases to lie about it? Ralph. Ralph was not going to have any of that. So he kind of lived this double life, and he created something called Second Opinion. He tried to do it the underground way and leak it anonymously, and it still wasn't working until he just blew the whistle. He just put himself out there. He got fired. It just And, you know, it's interesting. The book was pretty successful. He went on 60 Minutes back then for the, because of the book. And he was on 60 Minutes, an hour-long interview. Like, he was so excited. He was like, here's my day. You know, I can't believe it. All this work. Lose my job. You know, American Cancer Society convinced 60 Minutes to cut him. There you go. Once again, this is, so this has been going on since the 70s. I mean, this kind of thing is not new to our world. <laughs> that was my third movie. So, okay. So when I was finishing this movie up, um, they, uh, I had, I had, okay, I, by this point, too, like I had benefactors. Like people, a lot of people that were cured by Brzezinski in the day, you're in this do what I do. Eventually, people with money start paying attention to you. And they're like, hey, you know, I can help you out if you need some help, you know? Because, of course, I mean, there's not a lot of money in this. The first movie was on credit card debt. So, what I'm saying is, I've gotten to the point where I'll have like benefactors that help me um, make these things. I'll say, look, I need this much money to get to A to B. I need to travel here, and I'll just raise it. You know, even if it's just to get my rent paid, whatever. But, I did get some emails about fetal stem cell therapy, and everybody kept saying stem cell this, stem cell that. And to be honest, I, like most people, I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to it. And also, to be honest, I get my inbox filled with everybody into the sun with their next big idea for my next documentary. It just gets a little exhausting, honestly. So I kind of got lost in that, and it did. But one of my benefactors who had helped with my, some of my work just kind of said, you need to pay attention to this. I think you should, you know. So the short of that is, that was in 20, early 2014. So I spent the most of that year studying this subject, uh, just, just researching it, talking to patients. I didn't even turn the camera on it, really. And here I am today, basically, where almost five years now, which is half of my documentary career, is crazy to think about. Because I started working on this in 2008, 2009. Brzezinski was released in 2010. Here we are in 2019. So in 2009, that's 10 years. And half of it, fetal stem cells. So it is honestly the holy grail of it all. Brzezinski is clearly important, but... Here you have something that's, first of all, politically polarizing as can be. Like, people hate it. Half the population hates it just because it has to do with aborted fetuses, which I can get into. Um, but, of course, the other half is the market forces that never want to see this come to market. And it's also interesting, too, because so you have, both, you have both sides of the fence. Like, what a great thing as a journalist. You're like, oh, my God, what an interesting thing to cover. You have this remarkable thing that can be scientifically basically proven that this is helping people. Um, there's plenty of science decades before these scientists even created this to support the theory behind it. Um, and then you have this abortionist you're throwing on top of it. It's like, oh, my God, it's like the biggest hot potato you can touch. <laughs> and by the way, it's also convenient for the industry because it's so convenient for them because it'll never see the light of day, and especially in this country, because of the abortion alone. 
they'll just use that as their, their tool all day. So, but stem cells overall, like when I did this movie, um, I got a chance to interview the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. So it's not just fetal stem cells they're pushing back against. Um, this is the largest stem cell agency on earth. They're worth $8 billion. They were voted into existence by the citizens of California by some really well-meaning people to further the work of stem cell work. And they've been around for how long? Okay, been around for a while, not quite a decade. But their job, their only job, with all this billions of dollars, is to try to get stem cell therapy to the public. They can't do anything. The FDA is stopping them at every turn. And they're not even using, like, as I call, the Rolls Royce of stem cells, fetal. They're using the lower end stuff that isn't quite as effective. They can't even get that off the ground. So all of this near decade of work they've been going through, all this money behind them, the FDA is just roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. And of course, to open a clinical trial, the systems use, the reason they cost so much money, there's an outrageous amount of money, because the pharmaceutical company is usually behind it. What pharmaceutical company wants to support a stem cell therapy when it doesn't fit the model? You can't patent it. What are you going to do? You're just going to be a philanthropist and spend $15 million on a clinical trial and release it to the world and say, oh, there you go, gift to the world. Sure, you'd like to think people will do that. They're not going to do it. <laughs> so anyway, so what I'm getting at is the latest fetal stem cell uh, film, The God Cells, and why I'm here today. And the whole stem cell space is sort of not only is exciting because it is the future of medicine. All the experts will agree, um, even if they won't say so out in public, all of them. It's, we've been using chemicals to treat ailments forever. And that's been the old business model. Patent a chemical, get it patented, make sure the patent lasts a long time. But biology is on its heels, and that's what this is. And fetal is just sort of the, as I say, it's like the Rolls Royce in the parking lot surrounded by horse and buggies. Um, it's all transportation. As I love to use that analogy, People hear stem cells and they think, oh yeah, my glad has got stem cells and blah, blah, blah. And oh, I never heard about stem cells. Nope, you didn't get this. This is way different. And, and what's interesting about fetal too is that the experts and the media and everybody love to pretend it doesn't exist, which again makes my job even more exciting. I think I'm the only person on earth that has done a film about this. I really have looked hard. You can't find anything about this. You go to YouTube, I'm the only thing you're gonna find. You look fetal stem cells on YouTube, you'll see embryonic, which they think is fetal, or they think embryonic's fetal because everybody doesn't understand it. So, um, but I like to use in this analogy, it's like you watch a documentary about stem cells, or you read a book. Imagine reading a book about transportation and they just forgot to mention the airplane or the car. That's what fetal is in this scenario. It's like, but they're doing it. Like, ah, we don't need the car. Let's take that out of the history of transportation. That's what they're doing with fetal. Ah, no, 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 too controversial. We'll take it out. Pretend like it doesn't exist. So. Are there good quality studies on antineoplastons for cancer? What were the results of the studies? Well, the Brzezinski story, what's so uh, amazing about the story is how he was even allowed to do the studies. So here's a guy, I'll, I'll get to the answer to the question, but here's a guy who fled communist Poland with this new peptide, strain of peptides he found in human blood and urine that no one had found before. As one guy liked to put it, it was like finding a whole bunch of new islands off the coast of Miami, like where the hell did these things come from? He didn't really understand how it related to cancer yet. He was just a superstar scientist back in his home country and didn't agree with the Communist Party. He was trying to get the hell out of there, honestly. And because he was such a superstar scientist, they wanted him more than ever um, in the Communist Party. So he, he, I think if I remember correctly, like he either realized it had something to do with cancer before he left or shortly after he came to the US. But essentially, he flees Communist Poland with 20 bucks in his pocket he spends most of it on airfare to get to his like uncle's house in Jersey or whatever from JFK because you know on the cab fare, and he ends up like getting a, a job at Baylor College of Medicine down in Texas, and he ends up getting grants by the National Cancer Institute to study this for cancer because somewhere along the line, and it's been a while since I'm a little rusty on the story of this part of it, but he realizes that it had something to do with cancer because he's that's what it was. He studied it in every age of person, the antineoplastons level, the, which is what they call the peptides different races and different sexes and people with different diseases. And he figured out that, he found out that people with cancer seem to have a low count of these peptides. He's like, mm, maybe this is somehow correlated. So the National Cancer Institute realized what he had. They were paying him. They got a grant from them, but they didn't own it. They just helping him financially. They offered to bring him into the fold. And you got to remember, this is a guy that just ran from bureaucratic craziness from Poland. He's not going to just believe, you know, the next government. 
Do you know what I mean? So he kind of quite honestly, courageously, and it's so fitting to his personality, which is why I think he's even survived as far as he has. He was stubborn and went, hmm, I wonder if I can do this on my own. I don't need these, need these guys. <laughs> so he, he living in Texas, and Texas even today, but especially them, was like the renegade state. You know, they've, how many times do they want to secede from America, you know? And there was laws in place at the time where if you were a doctor and a scientist and you had an invention and you had your own practice, you were allowed to give, based on state law, a new experimental therapy to a terminally ill person within the state of Texas as long as it didn't cross state lines. So he hired lawyers and figured this out. He's like, oh, I'm going to open my own clinic. And he actually let the FDA know. He certainly let the Texas state know. But to be honest, I think they probably never believed in a million years this guy was going to cure anything. So, so in the late 70s, he opens up like a little clinic, a little strip mall, and he starts treating patients. And as you can imagine, these are people at death's door. They had like given up on everything. And they're like going to go to some Polish guy that hardly speaks English in some strip mall in tech, you know what I mean? So he starts curing people, not everybody, but, and so that happened, all hell breaks loose. So at the end of the 70s, all through the 80s, there's like FDA's filing injunctions against them. They're like trying to stop them in every turn. And Brzezinski's just like saying, nope, not doing anything. I'm not going anywhere. They were filing grand jury after grand jury after grand jury. And as one guy said, you can indict a ham sandwich in the grand jury. They couldn't indict Brzezinski. So to get to your question, the trials, they finally get him to court at the federal level in the 90s. And two sets of, and by the way, when they did that, the FDA, it kind of backfired on them before they were even done. Because at first they were like, we're taking all the patients off the therapy. And their patients lost their minds. You know, he had a lot of patients at this point. They're down in DC, they're raising hell. The news, national news is covering this. So the FDA goes, oh God, I guess we have no choice. We have to open up clinical trials for this guy. At least until the trial's over, until we put his ass in jail. Let's open up clinical trials. Eh. <laughs> so they open up clinical trials under FDA authorization and sanction. Like that's all he ever wanted anyway. So he gets to the trial, first trial, not guilty, boom, jurors are like, not guilty. FDA goes, oh, we're taking them back to court. <laughs> so second set of jury, and by the way, the jurors from the first trial showed up at the second trial to protest the second trial because they were like, this is so ridiculous, I've never seen anything like it. This guy's curing cancer, what are you guys doing? So Brzezinski defeats them twice in court, and because of that, it blows up in the FDA's face, and off go the clinical trials, and they continue. Phase two, random, uh, not randomized, but phase two studies for antineoplastons. Yes, they had remarkable results. And the thing is, he, but like any study, you can only focus on a certain cancer type for the most part. And for basically, because brain cancer is like a death sentence, I mean, you're usually told this is an operable that's all through your head. We can't take it out with surgery. We can fry your brain with radiation. And there's no chemotherapy that can do it because it doesn't cross the brain barrier. Sorry, get your things in order. Off to Brzezinski, there go. So he had a lot of a track record of brain cancer just sort of by accident because of all the obvious. So that was kind of the focus of different types of brain cancer in most of these clinical trials. So one of the, he's cured glioblastoma. I've met these people. This is like what John McCain died of. This is what Ted Kennedy died of. He's cured it. It's hard to say the percentage, but I think it's a nice, decent to say 20 to 35% cure rate versus zero. Um, and even the biggest, most famous politicians can't even be cured of it. You know, Of course, they don't go to him, obviously. But, but more remarkable than that was what's called a diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, or DIPG. And what this is, is a very rare tumor that forms in the brainstem of children. Only 400 children per year are diagnosed with this in the US, maybe 40 per year in England, rare. 90% of these children have ever been diagnosed with this are dead at two years. All of them, there's not a single survivor at five years, period except for the ones that were in Brzezinski's phase two clinical trials authorized by the FDA, antineoplastons. So when you ask me about percentages, that's got the most data behind it. So you're talking about a 30-ish percent cure rate for something that is a death sentence. Like, it's never been done. You can't find a kid that's been cured of this. You just can't, they don't exist, except for Brzezinski's trials. And some of these kids that were kids, now have their own kids. It's unbelievable. But going back to your question, because he was the first one to cure this, and because the FDA still is like, we don't want this moving forward, we're the police of pharma, we've got to do our job, there's only so much they could do in this case. They're like, they had to greenlight phase three randomized studies for this, because he was the only, I mean, it's never been done.
So this is really, really, I'm really glad you asked this question. This is another big moment to understand what we're up against, okay? So here is a guy who owns his own pharmaceutical company, basically, the Brzezinski Research Institute, has the Brzezinski Clinic, who owns the medication, who has been given permission by the Food and Drug Administration to do phase three randomized studies for a type of brain tumor that's never been cured in history. A randomized study, if you don't know, is when you have two groups. And in like, if it's a psychotic drug or like depression, they usually have a sugar pill against whatever. But in cancer, they can't do that. It has to be like standard of care in both groups. And then you add the new thing to one of them. And in this case, the only standard of care available for this brain tumor type was radiation. Never been a single chemical ever to touch this tumor. Radiation is all I got. So he was, had to just suck it up and had no choice but to open up a clinical trial for radiation in both groups, just add antineoplastons to it. He's like, ah, what a nightmare. Now I have to raise $150 million to do it. Okay, so he agrees, paperwork signed off on, $150 million is being raised. And again, the guy who helped raise the $150 million is the same man that was David Axelrod's old college buddy. So it's put, that's, that brings the story back to full circle. You ready? All of us ready to go. And again, these are randomized studies. Brzezinski has to step out of it. People are trained how to use the therapy. They're trained on the protocol. The final holy grail of testing for a therapy like this is when you hand it off to other oncologists so they can do it independently in a double-blind study. No one knows who's getting what. Of course, in this case, it's a little different because it's hard to not know. But I'm assuming what they would do is give them both radiation, give, then add sugar pill to this side or sugar injections, and then add real thing over here. I'm not really sure how they would handle that, but it never made it that far because... Every single children's hospital in the United States, you name them, St. Jude's, Boston's Children's, all the big ones that you see on TV, they would not allow the phase three randomized studies for a type of brain tumor in children that has never been cured before in the history of humanity to be done on their property. Yeah. So you think, why on earth would that be? It's only 400 kids a year. What's the big deal? This is gonna prove it for these kids. What's, have a heart. The problem remains to be this. Here's the problem. Let's say they let it go, all right? Maybe let's just say one kid got cured out of 50, still huge. The point is, if FDA allowed this, to, FDA, this is interesting because the FDA said, okay, go ahead, go ahead, here, here you go. It was the hospitals that stopped it, all of them. If it was approved for market for a brainstem glioma for only 400 kids in this country, right? That means if you got cancer or I got cancer of any kind, your oncologist or my oncologist has to, by law, give you antineoplastons. If you insist on it, instead of chemo and radiation, if you insist on it, even if your insurance doesn't cover it and you pay for it out of pocket because you can get it off-label. Get it? So, does that make sense? So what, by approving it for something so rare and tiny, people think, what's the big deal? It's a really big deal because who in their right mind who has not seen people go through chemo and radiation and everything else, who in their right mind isn't gonna figure out and scramble, even if Medicare doesn't cover it or whatever, to find a way to pay for antineoplastines, knowing full well, that if anybody that's looked at it, that A, your hair is not gonna fall out, you're not gonna get nauseous, you're not gonna destroy your bone marrow, your gums are not gonna go inflamed, all the crap that goes along with it. Oh, you're not gonna get leukemia in five years from, from the chemotherapy because that's what happens to half the patients that go undergo chemo. And you're, you're gonna opt for antineoplastines. And if that fails, then you go the chemo route. That's the problem. That's right there. There's a $4 trillion problem. One man, Brzezinski, could overturn a $4 trillion mark, uh, apple cart. So that's how, that's kind of been my job to like get to the root of it. Why? And uh, that's, yeah, so it's huge. So when you come to terms with that, sobriety, that sobering moment of the Axelrod story, again, I'm gonna say it again, Boston's Children's, St. Jude's. I mean, come on, these people are like, oh, save the children. Oh, not those children. <laughs> you know, it's like, we don't wanna, we can't. So. What we're looking at is not a lack of, of uh, people knowing about this. There's, they know about this, you know? You're talking about something that can really disrupt livelihoods. People can lose jobs. Companies could go bankrupt. You know, it could literally affect the economy, as Axelrod said. And imagine if $4 trillion, even if 10% of that was funneled to Brzezinski, colleges would start shutting. I mean, it's just a nightmare financially, and that's where we're at. It's really a bummer. <laughs> so, I, and honestly, when all these kinds of things came in line for me, I went, oh my God, we're, wow. And again, from a pragmatic point of view, I'm like, okay, my focus is not on trying to 
Because I've met with Congress people. I, you know, Nancy Pelosi was on the ground helping out Brzezinski back in the day before she rose to power. They all know about this. And by the way, a lot of them will get this therapy themselves, by the way. You know? um, Reagan went to Tijuana to get Laetrile. Nancy wouldn't let him go to chemo after he had a surgery. I mean, they know about this. Politicians have gone to Kiev. You know, so <laughs> it's not like they don't know, but their job is to protect what has been established. This is one of my favorite things to say. We live within an establishment. It has been established. That's why it's called that. When a new president comes into power, I don't care what you think he's capable of doing. If anybody comes, their job is not to change what has been established. Their job is to protect that with their life. You don't change it. And if you think about anything in our world that has been a revolutionary invention, never has it come out of the establishment. Steve Jobs didn't come out of the establishment. Brzezinski didn't come out of the establishment. I mean, think about things more or less controversial, like say a Steve Jobs or anything, I don't know, the guys that invented the internet, a bunch of dorks in their bedroom, you know, selling contracts to the military. I mean, these were not establishment folk. So and it's interesting too, because something else I've kind of found that I'm proud of is like, you know, we're all taught in school to like respect the Steve Jobses of the world. Look at that guy, you know, look what he accomplished. But we're never taught to be like them. We're never taught to go against the grain and, and, go and do what people tell us is impossible. You know? That's what the Brzezinski's do. And that's what like, MSL is doing. And so what I'm getting at is I stopped, I don't wanna say stopped caring, but I stopped wasting my energy on trying to change it. What I wanna do is help people know that this is here, that is there, that's good, that's bad, at least based on what I've known. You know? So that's kind of been more fun and it's less stressful to be perfectly honest. Because I, I can't tell you, I used to be active, activism boy with this, and I really was on the ground helping to fight with Brzez, for Brzezinski and all of that. And when you meet with enough politicians, you have enough Axelrod stories, and you, oh my God, and Children's Hospital saying no, and wow, you know, what, wow. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that's, so I don't know. Uh, I don't know what my next project's gonna be, but I just kind of, again, like I never ever did in the past, really. But I'm gonna continue on the MCEL route, because what's cool is Ukraine is a country where it's legal, they're not Russia, they're not Europe. And it's kind of cool because they're isolated because they're still independent. So is they able to just do their thing? I mean, if I can continue shedding light on what they're doing and maybe help change some lives by people being aware of them or maybe save a few lives, who knows, you know? Um, that's where my strengths are and what my, I think my job should be, you know? So. Have you gone to the St. Jude's of the world and asked them for a comment and so on? Um, no, I haven't done that. Um, what we did kind of experiment with is there's an organization called Stand Up to Cancer. You may have seen that. Okay. Stand Up to Cancer is actually one of the more progressive cancer fundraising entities, if you would, because what Brzezinski's therapy is, it's essentially a gene-targeted therapy. Uh, this is like a really long conversation, but the short of it is the theory behind it is when you realize his peptide invention, when later on we mapped the human genome, and we started figuring out that um, there are certain genetic mutations involved with cancer. And he realized that his therapy was actually turning certain genes on and certain genes off to push cancer back into check and get rid of it. So you're, it's almost think of your body like a big switchboard and you're turning switches on and off and it's very complicated. Cancer is a complicated disease. So if you can kind of balancing act that idea, you can ideally knock it out. And again, it's like the same thing. Like you can get rid of cancer like through surgery, but it doesn't mean it's not going to come back because that's genetic uh, malfunction. And that's what Brzezinski tries to do. But going back to what I was saying is, we, for fun, we kind of tried to apply, because all they do is stand up for cancer is like gene-targeted stuff. They wouldn't even talk to it. I mean, talk to anybody about, no. Oh my God, no way, no. <laughs> so, no, I mean, I thought about having like sit-ins on the lawn of the FDA. You know, I thought about all this stuff, you know, as an activist, but what are they gonna say? Here's an example, Sloan Kettering, um, what we did, because Ralph used to work there, when we opened in New York for that movie, we, the second, this is based on your question with uh, the children's hospital, this is the best answer I can give you. Because I know I haven't approached the children's hospitals about this. Because it also isn't quite in your face like that either. It's like enough bureaucracy where it's isolated, they can go, what are you talking about? We never saw this study. Oh, send it along. Oh, what? oh we lost it. Oh, can you send it again? You'll just deal with that. You know what I mean? But Second's Opinion, Ralph's organization he kind of created, was actually also a newsletter. It, what started out as leaking documents, he called Second's Opinion, Lateral Studies. It was like this newsletter. He was passing around this huge corporate office and people were like really digging it because it was anonymous. So people were like, uh, they, you know, they had this anonymous chain of command to like find out who's behind it. And if you were clever enough, you could figure out who it was. And Ralph still had his sort of agents in the front. 
But it ended up becoming this like newsletter where people could like air their grievances against the company. So it ended up becoming more than just the Laetrils thing. And it went on for a while. That being said, I said, Ralph, let's resurrect Second Opinion 30 odd years later for the opening in New York. And let's go out in front like you guys did back in the day and pass it out in front of Sloan Kettering. <laughs> so we did. And we did a whole, we resurrected it. It was like, of course, much nicer today, color print. And, you know, and by the way, each one was a free ticket for any stone cluttering employee that wanted to go to the movie that evening, you know, and some of them did. But we went at stone cluttering head on. All right. We even asked them openly radio. We got a lot of radio coverage. We were like open. And then part of the, one side was the newsletter. The other side was an open letter. We gave away thousands of these. We emails were made. Contact was made. They ignored this. They were deathly afraid of this. And it's funny too, like, so anyway, that was our version of like a, confronting them. And we just said, guys, just come clean. You just, I know it was a long time ago. The same employees aren't even there anymore. The data's there, you know it's there. We have it, we have copies of it. It's in the movie, and, you know. It's, it's your oldest scientist. That scientist that did these studies is on the cover of textbooks for medical students on how to use mice. This is a famous figure, you know the truth. Just come clean if you wanna keep your integrity. Just come clean. <laughs> they wouldn't budge. In fact, uh, the opening night after we picketed, or we didn't really picket, it wasn't like a big to-do. To we were just politely handing out. Um, a couple of guys in suits came up to the screening, and they were really obnoxious. You know, like the Sloan Kettering guys sat in the back. They were like, eh, I'm going to see this stupid thing. And at the end, their, their faces were like white as ghosts. <laughs> so that was, very, that was interesting. Nothing came of that. Um, this is fascinating kind of anecdotal story. Like one of my distributors who helped distribute the movie, like Amazon Prime, et cetera, he was at a bar like trying to hit on a girl, like just trying to talk to some girl. And, he, and she was like, and he was like, well, what do you do? She said, oh, I work for Stone Kettering. He's like, yeah, what, do you, what do you do? Oh, I'm a, a film distributor. And she just immediately goes, oh man, there's this movie. Whew. Second opinion, we're all scared, scared to death of this thing. <laughs> so my distributor is like, ah, yeah, that's my movie. I'm representing that. She's like, oh, she like storms out. <laughs> Anyway, so to give you an idea of what kind of behind the scenes thing I did. What's also fascinating about it too is I lived in New York City for a long time. And when it came out, I just moved to LA. So I came back. I lived there for over a decade, 13 years. I had never once in my life living in New York, riding the subway every day, have I ever seen a Sloan Kettering ad in the subway. Never. The opening week of our, my movie, they decided to plaster the subways, the Sloan Kettering ads. So that's fascinating. So they would rather fight back and then to admit wrong. You try to approach them and say, come on guys, do the right thing. Or why'd you do this? They'll, they'll come back at you fiercer than you'd ever imagine. There's no like, oh, we're sorry. Nuh-uh. Because they would have to admit wrongdoing. You know, even, in, even if the same Jews acknowledged that they, that they even had knowledge of it, they already just implicitly admitted guilt. So they're just gonna pretend like they have no idea what you're talking about. Who's in charge of the cancer industry and what are their main goals and objectives? Okay, um, as we, uh, I think we naturally gravitate towards like the good versus evil, black and white, like we go after like the evil people. I've come to the conclusion that it's not really about evil people. I think maybe these people aren't necessarily evil. They're just doing this, the job they were given and as horrible as it is to protect this establishment. Um, it's a systemic problem, it's bigger than just a couple of evil jerks at the top keeping the cure, like it's bigger than that. So who's in charge? It's interesting, it's because it's like, like you look at the president, is the president really in charge of the country? Not really, <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's not, it's kind of hard to say, it's not really the FDA, it's just sort of like this almost like unconscious understanding that in, when you get to that level of power in that world, that again, going back to what I was saying earlier about the good, revolutionary, groundbreaking, disruptive stuff, you can't do that from that establishment. It's not allowed. And even when it does happen, it has to be whittled down to fit within the market. So um, it was just interesting is that Goldman Sachs recently just, is so many amazing. For years, you'd be called like a tinfoil hat conspiracy theorist to say they're trying to hide the cure for cancer, right? Goldman Sachs just flat out, it was just a few months ago, I think it was earlier in the summer last year maybe, I want to get this right, but you can look it up. It was like the New York Times or the Washington Post, something like really mainstream. They just said, we don't think it's good for the market to create a cure for cancer. And they just said flat out. It's like, you know, they really, I mean, you can look this up. If anybody watching this, just Google it. Goldman Sachs, cure for cancer, whatever. But that, that's getting to the point where they're just like putting it right out in front of you now. They're like, yeah. And uh, 
But it's, again, it's like I can almost, as dark as it sounds, understand where they're coming from. Because if they really need a cure for cancer, if they get it, they're going to find it. If they, if they know how to figure it out, they'll find it. But their job is not to find it. Their job is to sustain this machine. That, the CEO of Merck or whatever, a cure for cancer is his worst nightmare. I mean, think about it. I'm going to go down this tangent again. Let's just pretend for a minute that, you know, but they also, it's like the myth that a cure for cancer would be worth a billion dollars. Yeah, for maybe a few years until it goes, becomes a generic drug. Just imagine. Imagine we, for you and I, we created a cure for cancer, right? We managed somehow to get it through testing without being destroyed. We get it on the market somehow. And we like work for a big pharma company. We, we say we work for Pfizer. Say we, I'm a CEO, you're vice president. We're like, ah, we're going to bring the cure for cancer to market. We just brought it to market. We have a bunch of the other cancer drugs that we've been you know, getting crops off for years. Oh my God, it's been 12 years into it. Now it's, patents are gone. Now it's generic like the antibiotic. You just destroyed yourself. You just put yourself out of business. What are you going to do now? <laughs> do you get it? I mean, so it would take a special person that would be so manipulative because I almost think it would have to be a person capable of the same sort of quote unquote evils to hide one, to bring one to market. I really think it would take someone that knows how to manipulate this system on the darkest levels to even bring a cure for cancer up. We, they would have to do so much shady stuff to push this thing through. Do you know what I mean? Does that make sense? So who's in charge? I don't know. I mean, it's bigger than that. It's like, it's just, it's just like this monster machine industry that has been created. And once again, going back to what I was saying earlier is that you have innovators like say Steve Jobs with Apple. That's not really that controversial because he just, because he also created a new market. He wasn't taken down an existing market. Netflix kind of took down an existing market with, took out Blockbuster. The internet kind of took out an existing market with long distance, but Long distance companies, the smart ones just started offering internet. Everything but just shifted. But it's different. With medicine, it, you, you're able to hide behind. It's so easy to hide behind, oh, that's quackery. You're giving people false hope. As soon as something competes with you, especially if it's good, oh, that's when they really tell you it's a bunch of quackery. <laughs> it's like if they go after something hard, like they have with me and Brzezinski, you know you're on to something because they don't waste their time trying to save people's lives. They could care less. What they're doing is saving their, their industry is we're trying to do. So again, this is the cigarette company started this. It's called astroturfing. If you go look at Wikipedia, look at my movies, it, it looks like I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm like the worst lying filmmaker you've ever heard, you know? But uh, that's what they do. Like the, it's called astroturfing, fake grassroots. So cigarette companies pioneered this idea in the late 90s where they were, the courts were going after them. They were like, no, they're not addictive. You know, they're taking out our industry. They created smokers rights groups. Do you remember this? Smokers' rights groups. Smokers want their rights. And it sounds like it's come from a bunch of proud smokers. Uh-uh. Cigarette companies created all this out of thin air. <laughs> That's what the industry does. So with Brzezinski, it was fascinating. They, they created like <laughs> the, the skeptical peoples for the protection of cancer patients and organizations like this and create websites and, and they, you know, they pick it and like, you know, they show up to my screenings and like, Con, you know, protest, you know, just like, you know, like Trump hires every, all politicians, by the way, not just Trump. I don't care why I'm not getting into politics here. All politicians hire fake people to show up at their campaigns and fake people to protest. They do the same stuff. The industry does the same thing. The politicians are just, you know, they just, in fact, the industry was doing it before the politicians figured it out. Politicians are just learning from what industry has learned to do. So I don't know. I could go on and on about this as well, but uh, it's a fascinating world. To me, I'm not, I'm less angry about it. I'm just, I'm honestly like a spectator, I feel like now. Maybe that's my coping mechanism. I mean, I'm not pretending and trying to sound insensitive, like, but as a spectator, if you just kind of mentally put yourself there and go, let's, let's see how these guys are going to react to this. And, and it's funny, it's like you think you can predict what they're going to do, and it's usually worse than what you thought they're going to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's crazy. Um, you know, there have been doctors that have been killed, you know, but, you know, it's interesting. I'm going to ramble about this for a minute, going back to the controversy and everything. Um, inevitably, with the success of my movies, some Hollywood people will start knocking on your door. And this is interesting, going back to how hard this is. I won't go on and on about this and give too many details because this is still ongoing. I don't want to like blow anything um, that, that might be happening, but some people that are very well established in the television and movie industry, um, I've been in communication with them for a while. Meetings have been occurring to where, imagine like a show like House of Cards, where you have this evil president and his evil wife and all these evil people, but you kind of love him, you know? And it takes place in the, the sort of the heart of politics. Imagine if he did that, but FDA and pharma. 
And imagine like, you know, one season had to do with somebody that, I don't know, cure for cancer, or another season had to do with this. And so that, I'm working on that. And uh, with some really powerful people, and we've been working on it for a while, it's really exciting. Problem is, <laughs> everybody's scared of that too. They're like, this is amazing. This is going to be huge. Oh, wait. Okay, they won't let us do it. Next place. No, they won't let us, they won't let us do it. No, we can't, we can't do it. It's, but it's totally fictional. It's all made up. No, they won't let us do it. We can't do it. <laughs> so they, we can't even make a fictional version of this to make the mainstream, you know? So anyway, but again, I try to look at it like as a specter going, wow, you know, I kind of know, like, wow, this is really something huge that I've stumbled upon. Even, you know, you can't even make a make-believe version of this that people can see. They don't even want that on, <laughs> on people's radar. So, yeah. Let me tell you another quick one. I was living in New York um, and uh, Dateline. Um, Suzanne Somers had written a book and she included Brzezinski in this thing. She had written a book about a couple of physicians and Brzezinski was in it. And of course, it's like hot potato. Oh my God, Suzanne Somers, here she goes again. You know, it's like, so, so it's easy for the media to make fun of this and then like feature her because she's famous and blah, blah, blah. So um, Dateline wanted to do a special on her and they contacted Brzezinski because she's in the book. Brzezinski is smart. And he's like, I'm not talking to you. He said, you want to talk to me? You meet this guy, Eric, and I hadn't, hadn't released the movie yet again. He said, I want you to sh let this guy, you know, he's in New York, let him see my movie. You can show, he will show you his movie about me that he's working on. Instead of me spending a month or longer, the time it would take to explain to you what's really going on here, he did a pretty good job doing it in two hours. You know. So I go to 30 Rock, I sit down, one of the head producers of Dateline. I like, walk by like Brian Jennings' desk or whatever, I'm like I'm in 30 Rock and MSNBC in the area and all this. And, um, um, I sit in a room in this little office and I play the movie. And I wasn't gonna give her a copy. I bring it with me and I took it home with me. Um, she cries during the movie, during the part with some of the kids who are in Congress with their parents. And like, you, if you see the movie, you'll see. And she was kind of flabbergasted by the, what she just experienced. Because kind of like Ralph at Sloan Kettering where he just assumed it was a bunch of nonsense so he learned the truth. She had that moment with me, I could tell. She was like, oh, this is Susan Summers, ridiculous, blah, blah, blah. And there's some Polish cancer guy and probably a quack, you know? And then she sees my movie and goes, oh God. <laughs> you know? So I walk to the elevator with her and I never forget. I remember like this. She pushes the button and I go, look, and I can't remember, I see, I can't remember her name, but I just said, look, I know you're a big, you're Dateline. I know, you know, that you have a job to do, but that, you know, just, I really just plead with you. Just give this guy a fair chance. The, just, just saying that this guy is unproven, just saying this guy is a quack or, you know, I'm sorry, you know, you know, you saw that, you know, you can prove. The FDA says it works. They've approved the trials. He's been approved for phase three, you know, and she just kind of looks <laughs> and she goes, I really like to do the right thing here. My bosses are not going to let that happen. And the elevator doors open and off I go. Yeah. <laughs> she was candid and I emailed her back and forth. I mean, she was just, at least she was honest. At least she wasn't completely going to bullshit me, you know. And I always thought it was fascinating, you know. I didn't have anything recorded or anything, you know. But, yeah. Um, and one more quick one since I'm on this subject because bring, you're bringing back a lot of old memories. Um, again, before the AstroTurfers came out of the woodwork, came after us so badly, MSNBC saw it. And I actually got an agent for a while. I was in a film festival in Jersey. And an agent who had gone on to do some big stuff. That he's mentioned a lot of the Academy Awards now. Thanks to, I, oh, I can't remember his name. But he, like, helped... That Japanese movie about dolphins, that documentary, that really famous one. What's that called? Uh, whatever. Anyway, uh, The Cove. Like, he even worked on that. He's a big dude, you know? And he, even bigger since he knew me. Um, yeah, I don't want to say his name. It's okay. Anyway, um, but he represented me because he said, look, this is a great project. I'm not going to sign you. Let's see if we can sell it. <laughs> you know? And I understand where he's coming from. He's a businessman. He saw that this is going to be a tough one. He's not going to sign this guy with one movie. But he gets the only company, only organization that really showed a lot of interest was incredibly MSNBC. So back to 30 Rock I go, MSNBC. This is after the movie had come out, after Dateline. And I'm thinking, okay, these guys have advertisements. They do like documentaries on prisons. I'm like, you know. So I go in and there's this big conference room. There's a lot of them. And I was just by myself. And it was almost like, it was like a bunch of executives on this side and this side. And I go in and sit down. And the guy actually says to me, the one guy at the head of the table goes, um, honestly, Eric, I wanted to just have you come in so I can meet you for myself and make sure you weren't a nut job. Because I saw this movie and I'm thinking, how could this possibly be? How could I live in the country that this happens? You know, we really are seriously considering finding a way to get this on our television network. I'm like, wow, okay. So we all this back and forth, back and forth. They're like, okay, we need you to whittle it down to 44 minutes. This is a two hour movie. 44 minutes to fit with commercials on an hour block. You know, I even got a budget approved. They were gonna pay me to like deal with it. And, um, 
And all these weeks and go by and all this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And finally, one of my biggest supporting producers in this whole scenario sort of sheepishly calls me. She says, we can't do it, Eric. We all love this project. Legal will not let us do this. Our pharmaceutical advertisers will be so pissed if we aired this. Yeah, so, yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, but, um, yeah. <clears throat> Eric, what exactly are the benefits of fetal stem cells, and how many different versions of stem cell therapy are there? Sure. Um, the benefits for, it's a, it's a complicated one. So, and I'm always going to, like, I have been answering every question. I have to kind of start from the beginning. So, all stem cells do are they regenerate. So, you and I, as we're sitting here, they're, they're, they're working on stuff right now. Um, I think somebody once said we wouldn't live an hour if it weren't for our own stem cells. So like if you sprain your ankle, cut your hand, whatever, those are your stem cells partially coming out to regenerate that injury. And of course, even if you're not injured, you know, this is like sort of your body's defense mechanism against you name it. So obviously that beautiful thing that we have in us, what a great idea for a therapy if you can figure out how to manipulate that. So. But, you know, the first stem cell therapy ever created was actually the bone marrow transplant. This is actually stem cells. That's all it is. It's just taking entire bone marrow. Because, by the way, a lot of our stem cells are laying dormant in our bone marrow. So when you get sick or whatever, there's often your stem cells are coming out of your bone marrow and just going in throughout your body. So I'm going to get to fetal, I promise. But so you have, you have bone marrow transplantation, right? Now, what's interesting is... Even though adult stem cell, there's okay, there's adult, which they take it from you and then they give it back to you after they waken them up. You have umbilical cord stem cells, which can be done in a host of different ways. You either save them at birth for your kid, maybe you access them later, or there's a lot of people trying to do clinical trials and other organizations where they're giving umbilical to other people that aren't necessarily your umbilical cord. You have embryonic stem cells, which I can get into in a minute, which are highly dangerous and are often confused with fetal, not in the same room as fetal, but they sound similar, not the same. And you have like so many other stem cell types out there. Um, like then you have something called amniotic, from the amniotic fluid. They're not stem cells, by the way. You'll see ads for them. You'll see them in magazines. They're a freeze-dried, dead amniotic product that they wake up or they, you know, they thaw out and they stick into you. They have some decent results, but you're not going to turn Parkinson's around with it or anything like that. But anyway, it's just important to spring that up because it's not a stem cell at all. But they love putting stem cells after it because most of the public doesn't understand what the heck a stem cell is to begin with. So it's really easy to manipulate people and when they don't know what the hell they're looking at. And again, that's kind of part of my job again with this space is to help people understand that. So while I did focus on fetal, I spent a lot of time helping people understand the differences of the types why some are quote unquote better than others and why some have more limitations than others and why fetal, in my opinion, is sort of like this, uh, like, like the Rolls Royce in the parking lot surrounded by horse and buggies as I had mentioned earlier. Um, so if you have a sports injury, say, adult stem cells where they take it from your fat or your bone marrow and they wake them up and give them back to you, you have some, something wrong with it. I mean, that's probably some good results. A lot of sports stars get it, but you gotta remember, if I am 46, so if I underwent adult stem cell therapy, they're taking out my 46-year-old stem cells from my blood, basically. It's just blood cells. You wake them up, and they, you have to hope that they become a muscle cell for my sprained whatever. Or let's say I had a heart issue. You have to hope your 46-year-old blood stem cell becomes a heart cell or a brain cell or whatever your ailment might be. Um, and that's the same goes for uh, umbilical, except that's only nine months old versus, you know, your, your age. Um, but with fetal, harvested at end of first trimester, I know it's, it's, it's uh, hard for people to wrap their head around, but one of the 50 million uh, voluntary abortions on the planet every year, um, that's where they come from. Um, you're getting brain cells, liver cells, heart cells, you're getting the whole package. And... Um, so to, I'll, I'll get to efficacy in a minute, but because they're capable at the time when they're harvested, in this case, of not experiencing a genetic rejection, you think, oh my gosh, you're putting foreign DNA in you, your body's just going to kick that right out. Not with fetal taken at the right time of gestation. That's why adult works, because it's taken it from you, giving it back to you. Um, umbilical cord, they're experimenting with that, but there are a lot of people getting sick from experimenting with somebody else's umbilical cord, giving it to some other adult. So, but for whatever reason, these guys have figured it out 
that at the end of first trimester, um, there's no genetic, re, re, there's no rejection. And um, because of that, if, promised, if harvested properly, the, you can imagine the difference in results of positive results with fetal for a myriad of diseases versus adult or something else. Um, since we're on this tangent here, fetal is like a void. Like you, you go to Google and you type in fetal and you'll get embryonic. Um, you'll watch a documentary about stem cells, you won't find fetal. You'll read books about it. Where's fetal? If you don't know about fetal, you, won't know, you would never know it even existed. You'll have articles that think they're talking about fetal, but it's actually embryonic because most journalists don't understand it. Most journalists are just doing their job. They got the next assignment. Oh, I got to do a thing about this stem cell thing. Uh, you know, and they do it, and they do a good job as much as they could, but they don't have the experience that I have, and certainly not of a scientist has, understand a very complicated, convoluted, and up-and-coming technology. So fetal embryonic. Embryonic cell is a five-day-old blastocyst grown in a petri dish in a lab by taking a sperm and an egg and putting it together. There's no organs being formed. It's a five-day-old blastocyst. It doesn't even really know, really, where it's going. You know what I mean? A fetal stem cell, when harvested when properly, already has organs. It's just like a thing, right? An embryonic cell, five days old, fetal, seven to 12 weeks. Embryonic has been known repeatedly. There are some people using it, not in America, not on any wide scale, but you can go to Tijuana, you can go all kinds of places to get this. People have been known to grow teratomas. It's a non-cancerous tumor. A lot of weird stuff will grow in you if you get injected with embryonic stem cells. It's not funny, but but you're talking about something that's like a few cells that you're putting into another human being. Are you insane? Like, you know, who, you have no idea what's going to happen. But it sounds fancy, right? So uh, I'm getting off track here. But anyway, but fetal is not that. It is separate. The media gets confused by the two. And that's kind of part of the reason why I, had, I wanted to do this movie to kind of help clear that air. In my personal opinion, my humble opinion, not being a doctor, not being a scientist, just a journalist, living in this space for five years, I've never seen results in any other stem cell type like I've seen in fetal. And when you understand the mechanism of action, you understand where they come from, you understand why, it makes absolutely logical sense. So if you have brain damage or you have a stroke or whatever, and you get fetal cells with neuronal cells and you have improvement, you understand why that happens. While the same patient may have gotten adult, it has no improvement. Well, because the adult cells didn't have any neuronal cells, and of course you're trying to fix the neuronal, neuronal system, duh, you know what I mean? Same with like, like easy ones like liver disease, you're getting liver cells given to you. Um, I, I don't know if you saw my talk, but the first patient they ever treated before they had a clinic was a kid who had bone marrow failure from a plastic anemia who was living off of blood transfusions um, waiting for a bone marrow transplant just to survive. And he got this because his parents bought radiated milk from a milk farm from Chernobyl, that part of the world. Bone marrow failure, waiting on a bone marrow transplant. And they gave him two rounds of fetal liver cells only. They had not really developed the whole protocol yet. Cured him. He's still alive today. I showed pictures of him you know, in today's talk. So try doing that with adult cells. Try doing that with anything that's stem cell related, except for a bone marrow transplant, which is you need a match, it's highly invasive. You have to bring the body to the brink of death with all these, uh, you know, you have to bring the immune system down so the body will take it. And they just stuck this in this kid's arm. And, you know, I'm not saying that this can replace bone marrow transplants, nor are they. But in this case, it worked because they, they couldn't get one. They didn't have a match. They, you know, they were waiting. So, yeah, that isn't a good example. I mean, again, a lot of these patients, though, that go to M-cell and go to get fetal, they've already tried the adult route. They tried all of it. And it didn't work. And they go to M-cell and it works, you know. But it doesn't work for everybody. You know, it's not a magic bullet for anything. But that's sort of like the quick overview of the different types and, you know, and why fetal is clearly superior. What's also interesting, too, is when I interviewed the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine, these top dog stem cell guys, and I, you know, they were willing to talk openly about their struggles with the FDA and all that. But I bring up fetal, and they're, they're, they've only talked about it off camera. <laughs> And actually, it's funny, um, Carl is a Parkinson's patient who's one of the patients I presented. He might be in my sequel, but I've just kind of been following him on a personal level because we both live in Southern California. He was telling me that he decided to go to like the stem cell meeting thing. I don't know how he found out about it, but he was in the audience of like a bunch of doctors and scientists, and he kind of like sat in the back. Like I think it was with his dad or whatever. And he, he listened to the whole lecture, just like I was saying, not one mention of fetal. They didn't even mention what type of stem cells they were talking about. It was just stem cells can do this and stem cells can do that. Because Carl saw my movie and he knew how to ask the right questions. He just went, okay, what type of stem cells are we talking about? 
And they're like, oh, well, you know, blah, 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 blah. He goes, what about, uh, okay, which one's the best stem cell? And then no cameras roll. And they go, oh, fetal, clearly fetal. So why aren't we doing fetal? And he said, no one can answer that question. Everybody just sat silent, you know? So again, not, I don't really have a conclusion to the story, but, but then he would, he would corner the scientists later, and they just, they just kept skirting around it. They just won't, they won't face it. And again, it's just one of those, and I think it's just the abortion issue. It's just, uh, you know. But since I talked about that, I want to say it again. 50 million abortions every year. And the, I think the time I've been sitting here almost an hour with you today, or the time I was on that stage, eight or 9,000 fetuses were afforded in the time we've been hanging out, or the time I was on that stage. So there is no shortage of this. And a lot of people love, not a lot of people, some people like to say, oh, you're killing fetuses on purpose, that's how evil. Oh, you know, women are getting pregnant on purpose to go to fetal cell. How absurd, that's not, none of this is possible. <laughs> so it's like, even if you, we try to like harvest every fetus possible we can, that was aborted every day, we could never keep up. There are so many of them, it's, and I don't mean to talk lightly of it, but the idea, I can't help but to get defensive about it, because the idea that anybody would want to get pregnant on purpose to have an abortion is just absurd. Um, secondly, doing it on purpose in any respect, absurd. Not when you have this overflowing abundance in, our, in this world of this fetal material. It's everywhere. And one of the examples I used was, you know, you could hate abortion. That's your right. But you're not going to stop it. I can hate guns. That's my right. I'm not going to stop guns any day, anytime soon. There's going to be more guns tomorrow than there are today. There's going to be abortions tomorrow than there are today. That's how it is. So guns kill people, but abortions can save lives. Unfortunately, that's just a hard truth, you know. So what's more immoral? Throwing them into the garbage repeatedly or... Whoa, don't put that in the garbage. Let's see this to these clever scientists and see if we can't help somebody with it. It's going to go there anyway, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then take it a step further, because they're in such abundance, the abortion, the, abor the uh, uh, fetal material, if M cells sees anything wrong with it, even if it's a perfectly clean batch of material with all the bacteria, no bacteria, no viruses, nothing, if it maybe isn't quite viable enough, maybe it didn't make it over to the lab fast enough, they'll just toss it because they can because there's such an abundance of them. They, they'll toss 40% of them. Just, they don't want, like, ah. So, which also is kind of says a lot because they can pick from the most viable, the most valuable, the most, the greatest possible material they can get their hands on. Um, they don't need to, you know, um, get, you know, less, the, what is the word I'm looking for? They don't need to, um, you know, go for second best and um, marginalize themselves just to keep the business now. I mean, they're doing fine. You know, they they got plenty of it flying in. It's unfortunate. Again, I don't mean to talk so lightly about it. No, no, but it's yeah. like you said, yeah. it's getting thrown away either way. Yeah. For yeah. lack of a better term. So. Yeah. I sincerely hope you enjoyed that. It was definitely one of the best opportunities I've had to fully tell my story. So again, if you have type two diabetes and you want to see if you can qualify for some free fetal stem cell treatment in Kiev, Ukraine, and be in my new documentary, get in touch. If you want this therapy and you want to go and be there while I'm there, my goodness, I really enjoy having other people around. It makes for the trip be a lot more fun. Get in touch. Eric at ericmarola.com. E-R-I-C at E-R-I-C-M-E-R-O-L-A. I can certainly streamline this process for you. I've been there a million times. It is not a bother for me to tell you what to do setting up this whole thing on your own. I'll talk to you next time.